Uh, you know, throughout the series, we've had a chance to serve some people who are game changers in their own right. And this morning, I'd like you to welcome to the stage Alan Maxine Stevenson. Alan Maxine, why don't you come on up as we welcome them. I gotcha. <laughs> so Al told me this morning when we were talking that uh, he's not really interested in uh, having the mic. He's here as moral support. So if you think I'm being rude by not letting him speak, that was by his design. So why don't we just let him wave to everybody once and you can say, hi, Al. <laughs> there, now you know. So. Um, Maxine, um, tell us just how long you guys have been coming to Grace and maybe the circumstances that got you here uh, originally. It's been about eight or nine years, and a sister from the church, uh, Phyllis, she brought us, because at that time we were having, uh, we were coming out of a house fire um, and a lot of other stuff, but she was taking us to the church to see if we could get some assistance. And we did. Yeah. The church was tremendous. <laughs> um, in fact, they were so welcoming and uh, so wonderful to us, uh, we decided to stay. And we're glad you did. Amen. <laughs> yeah. So they went through a house fire. Um, we see a game changer and someone in the community who knows Grace, come alongside him, helped connect him with my father's business and a few other people and, and help them through the tragedy. But then um, uh, tragedy hit again in kind of more recent times. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And uh, uh, to me, this is just, uh, it's amazing. Uh, oh, sorry. We ended up in a house fire again um, last year, in fact very devastating uh, and this and at this particular time our family had grown because we had our mom uh, my sister and uh, um, you know and my son from up north with his uh, um, younger brother he's autistic Michael in fact uh, the number that was there in the house at that time was 12 the 12 people in the house and what caused the fire this time tell them real quick just well what what caused the fire was a car, it was some trouble outside. Uh, the car hit our house, hit where the uh, gas line and the uh, electrical uh, hit the house, hit a post. Uh, it, it careened into the house. Uh, it was on fire. It missed my sister, who was uh, asleep downstairs with the boys, uh, my grandkids. And it missed the furnace. It was headed that way. Sure. And, uh, but the rest of the house caught on fire too. So all downstairs caught on fire upstairs. And the fire was moving real fast and went up the walls of right. uh, the ceilings and everything. And it was just moving was so quick. fast. Yep. We, you know, you didn't have a chance to think uh, if it wasn't for the Lord. We couldn't think on our own, so he was moving us. Yeah. Yeah. So 12 people in the house, and by an act of God, all 12 people get out of the house. Yeah. When, the front uh, door was 
yep. blocked off because the fire had moved so fast in the front. That's where the uh, refrigerator. That's where the. That's kitchen. where we should keep the refrigerator. But. <laughs> that's where the kitchen and the living room was. So that that was blocked off. Uh, when my sister got the kids upstairs, that became blocked off, which was the side door. There was no other door except the patio uh, area, which is in the back. And that's where everybody had to uh, end up going. Uh, and it was a matter of different ones. We didn't realize at the time, but I realized they fully, that was the Lord just moving us in the right way sure. and in a, a right time. My mom was deeply asleep. Well, she's about 80-something years old. I, she's going to be mad if I can't remember the number, but she's in her 80s. And uh, she was deeply asleep, and I have a heavy voice, so I didn't want to frighten her, even though it was a frightening time. So I went in there, and I said, Mom, I said, uh, you got to get up. And she said, why are you waking me up in the middle of the night? And so I said again, Mom. I really need you to come with me. And so she said, okay. And she got up and we got her out too. <laughs> I told her if she ever needs to wake me up for a fire, she can just yell, fire! Uh, I'd like to know that so I can move quickly. Yeah. So you've gone through these two really horrific experiences, you know, the, the amount of loss that you go through and really lost all of your worldly, yeah, not all of your worldly possessions, but, but most of them. Um, how does that affect you? How has it affected your faith? How has it affected your walk with Jesus? I mean, just, just talk about that just a little bit. Well, when you, when, when you do t are able to take the time to think about it, it, it's quite a bit. But we're rooted and we're grounded in the Lord. And he let us, <laughs> yeah, he let us know he was right there with us and that every step that we were making was steps that he enabled us to make because we couldn't have did it on our own. A lot of people came and asked, how did you do it? How did all of you get out of there? I always say it was grace and mercy, right. meaning it was the Lord. We couldn't have did it unless it was the Lord. So you, yeah, you can clap. So you never want to go through this again, but you, one thing you said, and I just want you to unpack it a little bit, is you said, I, I think I'm stronger. How is it that you could be stronger going through something like this because he made his presence known Amen. he strengthened us we i wanted to panic but he didn't let us panic <laughs> uh, he kept our, our our heads clear enough for us to do what we had to do and, and i had a lot of like i said i had my grandkids my mom and we couldn't afford el and i we could not afford uh, to lose our heads and god strengthened us he gave us uh the ability to do what we had to do. We relied on the church, which he used the church tremendously. And I want, if I didn't say thank you before enough, I'd say thank you to this church. The ones from the morning and from the afternoon came to our assistance, came to our aid in a great way. Don't hold it against me if I don't name names because I'll gum it up, but I am going to say it's okay. Tom and Heidi because they were there. I'm going to say Pat <laughs> and uh, different ones in there. There was Tammy and her husband and, and, uh, and Larry and a whole host of folks that just assisted us because we were out in the streets. We didn't have any place to go. God provided the place. He gave us clothes. Uh, my father's business uh, came through with food and a whole bunch of stuff and 
different ones at the head of ministries here made sure we got spiritually encouraged and gave us Bibles and everything. I could just go on. The church outpoured their hearts and showed the love of Christ in such a way that I'm still overwhelmed. And I just thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> I wanted... I wanted the opportunity for you to hear a little of the story. Here's the fascinating thing is I sent out an email earlier in the week and I said, hey, um, I'd love to interview someone who's been through some trying times and handled it well where we look at them and we see Christ in them as they went through difficult times. Three different people on staff said, well, you should talk to Alan Maxine. That's the impact they've had on us as we've watched them go through um, really some horrific life uh, circumstances and to just walk with the Lord faithfully as they move through it. But I also wanted you to hear some of the story of the people, the, the Flints and the Harriers and other people who stepped up in a time of crisis and came alongside. That's really what we're talking about, the idea of being a game changer. So um, I love uh, the fact that you're a part of our body. I love the fact that you uh, pray for us faithfully and that, that we are family. We and, are. Uh, we are modeling something that's pretty uh, profound, and I know it, it blesses blesses God. So um, allow me to pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for Alan Maxine. Thank you for their story. Lord, I pray you protect them from any more fires. We all pray, no more fires. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would just protect this family as you have. Um, I thank you so much that they are uh, here and a part of this fellowship and a part of our community. I thank you for my father's business and the way they stepped up. I thank you for Kathy and, and her hard work to just even coordinate all of the people that did all of the stuff. And I think of the people who built beds and just uh, so many people jumped in just willingly and excitedly to, uh, to bless Alan Maxine and, and then how they have in turn blessed us with their faithfulness, with their spiritual depth, with their words of encouragement, with their prayers. So Lord, thank you uh, for Alan Maxine. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's thank Alan Maxine. Thank you so much. Do you want to help them at the steps for a second there? All right, grab your Bibles and uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to actually work through the entire chapter, which I know is a lot, um, which means we're going to be here until 3 or 4 in the afternoon. So, okay, come. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're laughing, but that's not a real laugh, is it? <laughs> I know that laugh. First Peter chapter 4. And before we read the whole thing, I want to just read the first three words of, of verse 8. So, you, so even if you're not there, keep looking for it. But the first three words of verse 8 says, above all, love. Above all, love. And I wanted to read those three words because the truth of the matter is, those three words really are the central message of First Peter. Actually, those three words are the central message of what I'm going to preach today. Actually, those three words really encompass what it means to walk with God. But Jesus said, what's the most important thing, right? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and you love others as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself, above all that you love. So the truth is, everything we teach, everything we preach could be found in those three words, above all, love. So my challenge to you is if you take nothing else from today, if you don't hear anything else I say, just hear those three words. Meditate on those three words. Just allow yourself to be challenged by those three words. Above all, with doing nothing else. Don't turn to anything else other than above all, love. If you just hold on to those three words, if you allow yourself to think about those three words for the rest of the day or the rest of the week or maybe through the month of August, I guarantee you that it will challenge you. I guarantee you there will be moments where you're traveling in a different direction and you'll hear a little voice in your head saying, 
No, 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 above all, love. It really is the central theme of all of Scripture, but especially 1 Peter and what we're going to study today. So 1 Peter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 19. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, he doesn't live the rest of his life, excuse me, the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you don't plunge in with them for the same, with the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you, but they have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason that the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body. But live according, live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray above all, there's those three words, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12, dear friends, don't be surprised by the painful trial that you are suffering, as though something strange is happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, a thief, or any kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for First uh, Peter. Thank you for the word of God. I'm reminded today in the first service and even now I'm reading the, the power of God's word. The power of God's word to do surgery in our innermost being, to, to, to take out the parts that need to be taken out, to replace it with the things that need to replace. Lord, I pray that you would do some soul surgery with each one of us today as we walk through First Peter chapter 4, as we walk through your holy scriptures, as we learn together, as we invite your spirit to teach each one of us, Lord, I just pray that we would leave different than we came. No playing church, but that we would interact with the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in a home stretch of a series that we're calling Game Changers. And the idea here in the, is that, that, that Peter is, is calling all of us, each and every one of us, to be a Game Changers. We all have this calling on our lives to make God known. And in making God known to others and making God known to our family, our friends, our community, we actually have the opportunity to bring about change, to be about, about leaving a lasting impact for the good 
of the people around us. We are all called to be game changers. That's one of the major themes of this, this letter as we've walked through it. There's another theme, if you will, that we can hold on to. And that theme is that if we're really going to uh, live into First Peter, then we're going to have to be counterculture. You know what I mean when I say counterculture? What I mean is that we're going to have to kind of go against the norms. We're going to have to kind of do things in ways that the culture wouldn't recommend. If you go to, to the outside culture to, to understand how to do something, then, then you're, you're going to miss what God has. That somewhere in this, we have to be willing to, to look at the Word of God, understand the Word of God, apply the Word of God in our own lives, and act in such a way, even if society would tell you that's not the way it's supposed to be done. So when we study First Peter and the, the whole uh, the, the message of surrender and the message of submission, it's all counterculture. The stuff that, that I've taught about, about treating people well even when they mistreat you, that's counterculture. The, the, the teaching that we did a couple of weeks ago on marriage, it's not what the culture would tell you marriage is supposed to be, but it's scriptural. The idea of being honorable and and being uh, respectful and praying for your leaders even corrupt leaders is counterculture so all of that being said what I want you to understand is even the stuff we talk about today it's countercultural. but the deal is this if you want to leave a lasting impact for the good of others if you really want to be a game changer you're going to have to be counterculture you're going to have to work against the grain you're going to have to go against what society says you ought to do we have to be intentional. We have to be intentional about now a lot of the trends and the teachings of our surrounding culture to trump the truth of God. But the scary thing is when I first started writing this talk, I was thinking about the culture out there. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that we also need to be counterculture with the culture in here. That the evangelical American church especially, there is a way of thinking, there is a culture, and we ought to be willing to stop at times and look at the word of God and ask ourselves, are we living into the culture that God wants us to, or have we adopted the outside culture? Let me give you what I would say is just an example. This is not necessarily what we're teaching on, but there is a culture within the church that I would call consumerism. Actually, I would call it ultra-consumerism. And it's kind of uh, known by the fact that, that we treat church in the same way we treat a movie or a concert or a sporting event. We go and we, we sit and we hope to be entertained. We hope to get what we want to get. We come to receive something. We come to actually take something from the church. And I just want you to know, I'm preaching to myself right now. I'm just as guilty of this. But I come as a consumer to take. And I leave with the same exact attitude I would have if I went to a movie. So Meg and I get in the car, and the first question we ask, well, how was the movie for you? Did you like it? What did you like? Well, I didn't think the characters were developed very well. I did, we, we analyzed the whole thing, which is okay. But, but we're doing the same thing at church. We, we keep a scorecard in our head of how, how did the worship go? How, how, how did this happen? How was the sermon? Did you get what you want? And then you guys do a report to each other as you get in the car. And, and so there's a consumeristic attitude towards it. But I don't think that's what God wanted. I don't think that's really the way we're supposed to go to church. So when we were in Grand Haven on vacation, I went to church. Guess what? I analyzed everything they did. And, and it might shock you. I didn't get much out of church that day. But imagine if I'd have gone to church to give something. Imagine if I needed to go to church that day because I had something that I wanted to offer back to God. Imagine if I bought into the concept that we are the priesthood of believers and that we come to church to minister to one another. How different the culture of church would be. So, so there's this picture that we need to sometimes stop and think, is that, is that just the culture we developed or is that the biblical culture that God wants? And 1 Peter is full of examples where we have to be counter-culture. The culture says... People get what they deserve. 
The culture says that nobody's going to look out for you but you, and so you need to do whatever you got to do to protect you. But that's not what 1 Peter's teaching us. Actually, 1 Peter is teaching us that we're to respond to people in a way that they don't deserve. When people are evil, when people oppress you, that you are to bless them. That is totally counter culture. So we've learned how to, to act in a radical counterculture way, culture way towards our bosses, towards our spouses, towards family member, towards our community, towards each other in the church. And now Peter is shifting his attention and he's telling us how to respond counterculture in the midst of suffering. How are we to respond when difficult seasons come upon us? He lays out some strong teaching, some theology of suffering. He said it in the first service, and i say it again, that this is not a message that you're going to hear preached in a church that believes in a prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel leaves out a good theology of suffering. And we need to have a theology of suffering if we are going to navigate our faith in this world. The bottom line is suffering is a part of life. And Peter is writing us and saying, don't panic. God uses suffering. He informs us of, of, of what suffering is all about. And, and he tells us that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of going through hard times, above all else, continue to love. So that's the theme of today, that above all love. And we're going to see it, that in the midst of suffering, that we need to figure out how it is that we are to love when we're going through a difficult season. A little bit of a side note, but I just think it's worth saying that one of the things that's really struck me uh, as we've been studying First Peter is how different this letter would be if you were a Christian in Iraq. Just think about it. I don't know if you know what's going on in Iraq, but right now uh, people who are believers are being killed. People whose children uh, are believers are being killed. Little kids are being killed because they're Christians. It's not hype. It's not make-believe. It's truth. But you know, that's the culture that this letter was written to. That's what was happening to the people. This is when the Roman Empire was really stepping it up and, and Christians were being killed for their faith. And the people that Peter were writing to were the people like the people in Iraq. And he's saying to them, look, I want you to pray for those people that are killing your babies. And I read the letter and I think about how hard it is for me to apply this in my own life. And I'm not in Iraq and I'm not going through what they're going through. But the truth of the matter is, this is not a normal response pattern. Peter is writing to people who are deeply oppressed, and he's saying, pray for them. Pray that they prosper. Do you, think, do you think this letter would mean something if we were in an Iraqi context? Of course it would. And all that just to say that, that, that it helps us to understand the, the, laying, the, the groundwork of, of what he's writing. But here's the deal. How you view suffering, how you respond to suffering, your theology of suffering has to line up with the word of God. It has to line up with truth. Otherwise, you are at great risk of, of having this, this crisis of faith. You're, you're at risk of becoming incre increasingly angry or, or deeply depressed or disappointed with God or even turning it on yourself and becoming a, a self-loathing people that you don't, or person that you just don't have enough to work through it. If we can agree, and I think we can, that all of us are going to experience suffering, can we agree to that? Like someone's going to die. Someone in, that you know, someone that you love is going to die, that, that sometimes cars crash and houses catch on fire. There is, there is this unavoidable thing that we're all going to experience some type of suffering. Someone that you know closely is going to get sick. You may be the one to get sick. Like crisis comes, suffering comes. So if we can all agree that, <clears throat> excuse me, if we can all agree that, that we are going to suffer, then we need to have a solid 
understanding of the theology of suffering. What does this book teach us about suffering? So 1 Peter 1, 4.1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. Christ suffered, and we've already established we are going to suffer, and we need to learn to respond to suffering in the same way Jesus responded to suffering. Arm yourself with the same attitude. This is a chance for us to live into our mission statement. Our mission statement is what? We are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. If you're going to live like Jesus and, and Jesus responded in a particular way when he suffered, then we need to study how Jesus responded. We need to learn, which we're going to do today, how Jesus responded, and we need to respond in the same way. So verse 1 again, it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. This is a very complicated sentence to figure out how to interpret the the whoever um, suffers in the body is done with sin it's just hard for us to grasp what Peter is saying so so just bear with me for a second Christ lived completely obedient to God he did that because he loved the father he said I love God and I desire to do everything he asked me to do but he lived completely obedient to God in the midst of his suffering he was still obedient to God in the midst of his difficult times he never sinned and Peter's saying look I want you to have the same attitude as Jesus had so when you go through suffering make sure you too don't sin in other words put sin to death make sure sin is behind you so that when you go through hard times don't turn towards sinful behavior as a way of coping with your sin and we're going to see that a little bit more as we unpack it here so Christ lived completely obedient because he loved the, the father our attitude needs to be the same And a matter of fact, if you look at verse 19, and no, I'm not done by getting to the last verse, so hang with me. But verse 19 and verse 1 almost serve as parenthetical statements. They're saying almost exactly the same thing. Verse 19 says, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good work. They should continue to do the right thing. They should still put sin behind them. Keep doing the right thing in the midst of your suffering. Keep your eyes on God. Above all, in the midst of suffering, continue to love. Above all, love. We have to commit ourselves to loving the Father and continuing to do good. Now, we're not facing persecution like the church in Iraq. But can I tell you, if you are going to a public university... If you are in high school right now, if you're in junior high right now, and you've made a decision to walk with Jesus, you will have to make times and decisions to say, I am not going to do what my friends are doing. I'm going to live a different sort of lifestyle. I'm going to respond differently to people. I'm not going to do the things. If if you're going to follow what Peter's teaching, you've put sin behind you, which means you can't walk into the things that some of your friends are walking into. And guess what? You will be isolated. You will be ostracized. You will feel like I don't fit in. I don't really fit in in my high school. I don't really fit in in my junior high. If you go to the university, you're going to have to stand against the liberal teachings of the university and the things that come against you. You're going to have to stand firm for the truth of God. You can't just become part of the university culture. And so in doing that, you're going to feel ostracized and you're going to feel like you don't fit. But guess what? It happens in the workplace. It happens if you live your life outside of these walls. There's times when people will see that and they will treat you different. 
So we moved to verse 2, and, and here's the, the hard part about verse 2 is for some reason, Peter starts playing around with the pronouns, and he goes from I to you to he to they, and it's like, who in the world is he talking to? But when you go back and you really unpack it, if you just were to rewrite that with all uh, using the word you, it's easier to understand. So I'm going to read it for you, and I'm going to change some of the words just to the word you and see if it doesn't flow a little bit better. So you can follow along, and you'll see where I change it. It says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself. So he's, he's giving us an exhortation. He's talking to us as individuals. Arm yourself with the same attitude. Because you suffer in the body, you're done with sin. Don't turn towards sin anymore. Verse 2. As a result, you do not live the rest of your life, earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. You've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. All he's saying there is, look, you've already tried that path. You've already played in that sandbox. You've already done the things the world does. And you've already discovered that it doesn't bring you life. It doesn't bring you hope. It doesn't bring you all the things you thought it would. So don't go back to that. You've already figured out that that doesn't work. Why go back to that? Put it behind you. Be done with sin and move forward. So he's painting this picture of, of moving forward. A couple things that, that we can just make uh, an observation from chapter 4. And the first one is, if you choose to obey... If you choose to walk with Jesus, you will suffer. No maybe, no you might, you will suffer. As a matter of fact, we just talked about it, how it plays out in high school or in junior high or in the college setting, but, but he actually says people are going to see you. They're going to look at you and they're going to see you making different choices and they're going to treat you different. So look at verses 4 and 5. He says, they, he's talking about the world, your classmates, your, your workmates, your, your co-workers. They're going to think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they will heap abuse on you. He doesn't say they might, he just says they will and they heap abuse on you. And then he says they're going to have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living day. He says, don't worry about them. They got to an answer to God. That's between them and God. Don't worry about them, but just know it's going to come. So if you're going to be obedient to God, if you're going to walk out your faith in a radical sort of way, you will suffer. And the second theme that we can take out of chapter 4 is that if you suffer for Jesus, you're blessed. Actually, if you get to the language of the, of the chapter, it actually says that you should celebrate. I think it's fascinating when we read the gospel accounts and, and we get into the book of Acts and, and sometimes the, the, the apostles, they would be beaten and then it would say and they went back to the home and they celebrated. Look, we don't even have categories for that. We don't even have it a way of understanding but the point of the matter is they celebrated because they got to share in something that's pretty profound. So, so look at verses 12 and through 13. It says, dear friends, don't be surprised. If a part of listening to this message today, and if you're in school or if you're, if you're in the workplace, look, don't let it shock you. It's going to happen. Don't be surprised by the painful trial that you're suffering as though something strange were happening. Doug already told you it was going to happen. Don't be surprised. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed with his, that his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. When you suffer for loving God, when you suffer for doing the right thing, when you really live into above all else love and it brings about some type of suffering and you actually share in the suffering of Christ. Now here's a theological thing that we need to understand. 
So remember the story of Saul. Remember Saul was persecuting the church. This is before he became Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote so much of the, the New Testament. But he was a Pharisee, and he was going around. He was going for, and, and finding these underground churches, and he was that guy in, in Iraq that was killing people. Right? He, he was killing Christians, and he was on his way, and he's riding on the donkey, remember? And, and Jesus appears to him in a bright light, and he goes blind. But what does Jesus say to him? He says, Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting Christians? He says, why are you persecuting me? And the reason for that is we are linked with Jesus. We are one. When we become followers of God, we become one in spirit. That there is this unity that we have with the Father and the Son through the Spirit of God. And so when you suffer, Jesus suffers. When you actually go through hard times, Jesus goes through hard times. When Jesus suffers, when the body of Christ suffers, when the people in Iraq suffer, we suffer with them. Because when the body hurts, the whole body hurts. And there is this picture that we are interconnected. And so he says, when you go through suffering, I go go through suffering so there is this connection that you get to share in the suffering of Jesus but the other part of going through that is it helps us to understand in our own very limited small sort of way what Jesus went through when you suffer it's a place for you to think to yourself this limited amount of suffering I go through compared to all that Jesus it gives us a place of empathy and understanding and and being able to enter into knowing Jesus, so we know God more in the midst of our suffering. The reality is, in order to know Jesus, you will have to suffer. But then there's another side of this whole suffering thing. Because we know, even as we're sitting here, that all suffering isn't from following Jesus. You know, sometimes we suffer not because we follow Jesus, but because we didn't follow Jesus. Sometimes the suffering that we experience is actually called discipline. Sometimes we suffer because we're foolish. And sometimes we turn to things that we shouldn't turn to and, and we look to things other than God for our comfort. And so 1 Peter 4.15, he says, if you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler. I love this because Peter kind of gets the whole array here, doesn't he? He says, a murderer, a thief, a killer, you know, he gives his long list of heinous things, or a meddler. <laughs> like, how did you get lumped into that choice of people, right? All those. But I think he's trying to make a point. He's trying to make a point that when we act out in our own way, when we take things into our own hands, when we live any kind of sinful life, that we heap a whole lot of trouble on ourselves, that we can actually suffer just for being a meddler. You know, you're not going to go to the Jackson State Prison and, you know, what are you in for? Well, as a meddler. <laughs> Maybe you should. I mean, it'd save us a lot. But the point being, it's still important. It's important that we, that we understand the full array of how we can act out. And sometimes when we suffer, we need to ask ourselves the question, is this discipline? Am I living outside of God's boundaries? And sometimes you know. Sometimes you just know. Look, I, I'm going through this. So some of your marriages are bad because... Because you just keep bringing sin into your marriage. And so the first thing God would say is, stop doing that. And see if I can't bless your marriage. So there's this picture of, of, of discipline. But you know what? The scriptures say that what kind of father wouldn't discipline his children? A father who doesn't discipline his children doesn't really love his children. 
So there is an opportunity for us to celebrate even when we suffer because we stepped out of bounds because it reminds us that we have a God who loves us and a God who is trying to shape us and change us and bring us into the full understanding of who he is. Peter is making a a pretty clear point that that we have to, to be careful how we live our lives and we have to think about suffering. So so if, if you focused on, on living a life that, that above all loves others, that, that loves God and loves others, then you can't help but put sin to death in your life. You can't help but have a life with less sin in it. But here's the irony. Even the discipline is cause for celebration. Even the discipline means that you're blessed. Because if you fall under God's discipline, it means he loves you. If you fall under God's discipline, it means he's trying to show you something. So sometimes we rebel against God in the midst of our discipline when all he wants is for us to have this godly sorrow, this repentance. And then he redeems all of that mess and he makes good of it. And I don't know how. And, and Paul says, look, if, if grace abounds, should sin abound? Of course not. We shouldn't go sin so that we can see God move in it. I get all that. But the truth of the matter is if we repent, if we have godly sorrow... God redeems and God does amazing things and brings about healing and all of that. Here's, here's a, a phrase that you could hold on to. All suffering, all suffering has the potential to lead us to God. I talked to my friend Scott Shaw. This is kind of Scott's voice for the world. He travels all over the world talking about a theology of suffering. It's, it's just the message that God has given him for uh, churches and for ministry leaders literally all over the world. And, and this is what Scott said to me. When we were talking about suffering. He said, and we we're talking about the fact that God uses suffering. This is his quote. He said, I do not like this, nor do I understand it. But the fact is, God uses suffering to grow us. Fact is, we seldom grow apart from suffering. We seldom grow apart from suffering. So when we suffer, we need to ask ourselves, is, is this discipline? Is God trying to grow me up? Is God trying to show me something about my character? Do I need to make some changes? But the danger of all of this talk is that if we have poor theology, we begin to think that God works on a tit-for-tat system. And so sometimes we have this theology that says, if I'm suffering, it's because I've sinned. And I didn't say that today. Sometimes we suffer because we sinned, but all suffering isn't rooted in bad behavior. And if your, your theology is, God is just out to get me, then anytime you go through a hard time, you can spend your energy trying to figure out where you screwed up. And sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with sin. Sometimes that's not, not where it's rooted in. And so again, how we see this, how we view this, our theology makes a huge difference as to how we respond and how we carry ourselves through difficult seasons. The problem is, this idea that we suffer because we've screwed up doesn't really line up with Scripture. It doesn't line up with our own experiences, and it doesn't line up with the people of Scripture. You know, so, so who's Job? Job suffered great suffering, right? He, he, he lost family members, and, and he lost what he had economically, and, and he was sick. He had all kinds of suffering, and God himself describes Moses, or excuse me, describes Job as blameless, an upright man who fears God and shuns evil. That would be a pretty good thing for God to say of any one of us, yet Job suffered. Jesus suffered. And he never sinned. Paul suffered. 
and he was a hero of the faith. All of the apostles went through immense suffering, most of them even being martyred, yet they are the fathers of the church, so they all suffered. And, and Paul actually says, get this, Paul actually says that it's his suffering that qualifies him to be a ministry. He said, you know what makes me, he talks about all of his credentials, he said, but none of that matters. What matters is that I suffered for Jesus. And then he says, it's from the comfort I've received, I'm able to comfort others. Well, why would he need comfort if he hadn't suffered? And so the way he responded to God in the midst of his suffering actually is what qualified him to be a minister of the gospel going forward. So even our suffering serves to, to shape us and mold us and allow us to minister to other people. Sometimes we suffer just because we follow Jesus, because we've decided to make the right choice, because we're not going to fit in in high school or college, or junior high, or at work. Sometimes we suffer because we're stupid. Hope I didn't offend you. <laughs> Sometimes I suffer because I'm stupid, and I make bad decisions, and I sin. But sometimes we just suffer. And sometimes it doesn't make any sense. Sometimes it can't be explained. And so if you read the story of Job, in the end, God says, look, you can't understand. You are incapable of understanding all this, so quit trying. Doesn't mean we shouldn't ask a question, is this discipline? I think that's always a good question to ask. But if it isn't, and if in your spirit you really feel like it isn't, then sometimes you have to let go of the why question, because the why question can haunt you forever. Why? Why did I pray and, and you never let me have a baby? Why have I dealt with infertility my entire life? Why, why did I pray and... And ask you for a job and I, and I still don't have one. Why, 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 why can be a haunting question. But a good question to ask is, God, how do you want me to respond? God, what do you want me to learn in the midst of my suffering? How do you want to use this to shape me and mold me and make me into the person that you want to be? How can I use this season of difficulty to relate to your son Jesus and share in his suffering? How can I be more and more like Jesus in the midst of my suffering? I, I told you already, I talked to Scott Shaw, and, and he was knowing that I was preaching on 1 Peter 4, and he'd written a long article. Well, it wasn't that long. Sorry, Scott, if you're watching. It was short. It was very short. He'd written an article on uh, 1 Peter 4, and he sent it to me, and I, I want to read this quote that came right out of his article. It said, everything Jesus did was motivated by love for his Father, not to please others, not to receive their approval, not to avoid hardship. We can learn to do the same. We learn to obey God, not when it's easy to obey, but when it's difficult and painful to obey. This is what endurance entails. Sometimes we go through suffering because God is trying to grow us up. Because God is trying to change who we are from the inside out. So look at verses 7 through 10. I want to get through uh, this whole chapter because there's so much cool stuff in here. So verses 7 through 10, Peter writes these words. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can pray. Above all, there's our words, above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sin. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. When I first started studying this chapter and getting ready for this talk, I felt like this was a complete rabbit trail. I was trying to figure out, how am I going to teach this and still teach on the theology of suffering? It feels like he's going in a new direction or a different direction here. And the truth of the matter is, the more I sat with it and the more I meditated on it, the more I learned about it, the more I realized this isn't a rabbit trail at all. As a matter of fact, all he's trying to do is tell us, look, when you suffer, this is how you are to respond to other people. 
When you go through difficult seasons, when you're having a bad day, when you're feeling under the weather, this is how you're supposed to respond to other people. So here's how I would ask you the question maybe to get you there. When you are having a really bad day, when you've gotten more than one email that just didn't sit well with you, when your boss said something that was hard, when, 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 when your car broke down, when, whatever it is, when you're just not feeling well, what do you like to live with? No, really, like, what's it like to live with you in your home when you're having a bad day? Because I think Peter's trying to tell us something about how we typically respond to suffering, and he wants us to respond in a different sort of the way. So one of the things I've learned as I've traveled in, in, in my journey with Christ, uh, one of the disciplines I practice is fasting. And, and the reason I think I like fasting is God shows up in it in a pretty profound way for me. But, but when I start to fast, um, I always become a, a real ugly person. And Meg usually pays for it, especially at the beginning of a fast. So I didn't get my burger, so I'm going to be nasty to my wife. And you laugh, but it's true. There's something that begins to come out of me when I go through that season of, of not having three square meals and a piece of cake when I want it or whatever else it is that I turn to. So somebody wrote somewhere that I read a long time ago, who you are when you're fasting is who you really are. Here's the point. Who you are when you're suffering might be who you really are. So suffering has this way of peeling back the veneer and exposing who we really are. Wayne Stapleton used to say when you bump into somebody, sometimes stuff spills out of them. When you suffer, sometimes the stuff spills out of us. And, and Peter is saying, look, when you suffer, make sure you keep your mind clear. Look at it. He says in verse 7, keep a clear mind and be self-controlled. What does it mean to be self-controlled? It means I don't turn to the things I shouldn't turn to in the midst of my suffering, something else we're prone to do. I don't like the way I feel, so I'm going to go have a smoke. I don't like the way I feel, so I'm going to take the edge off with a beer. Whatever you turn to, I don't like the way I feel, so I'm going to watch mindless TV until I feel numb. I don't like the way I feel, so I'm going to, and you can fill in the blank with food. There's a thousand places we can turn when all God's saying is, no, stop. Be clear-minded, be self-controlled. And then he says, so that you can pray. So what do we do when we go through suffering? We need to be clear-minded, self-controlled, and turn towards God. God, what is it that you want to tell me as I'm going through this? God, help me to understand. Help me to, to move through this difficult season. And then he says in verse 8, above all, love each other deeply. This is time for the reality check. When things are stressful, when you're really suffering, and I mean you're really suffering, it's real stuff that's going on, do you love others well? When I've had the worst of days, do I go home and love Meg well? Do I take my eyes off of Jesus and become self-absorbed? Do I become irritable and grouchy and mean to people? Do I hold on to the mantra of above all love? In the midst of my suffering, am I still able to love God and love others? Verse 9, he says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Here, hospitality isn't about making a great dinner and putting it out on the table, although that might be hospitality for you. But you know, you could make a dinner for somebody and invite them over and even sit at the table with them and never be hospitable. Because hospitality is really about having space in your spirit for other people. 
Hospitality is really about having people come who are an interruption to your day and they don't feel like they're an interruption. It's that ability to welcome. You all know somebody who has a hospitable spirit. They always make you feel welcome, not in their house necessary, but in their life. There's room in their life for other people. And he's saying, look, the one time it's difficult to do that is when you're stressed, when you're suffering, when you're self-absorbed. You don't want to let anybody into your life. So he's saying, look, be careful, be clear-minded, pray, make sure you love each other well, and have space in your life for other people. And then in 10, he says, each of you should use whatever gift you receive to serve others. Part of our six essentials, right, is that you connect, that we gather, that we connect, and that we serve. Why do we want you to serve? I love it that we didn't plan it, but I love it that Carl said what he said. We're not looking for people to serve because we need people. We want people to live into what God called them to do. We want them to live into Ephesians, which says you were created by God to do a good work, which he prepared in advance. And what happens when we serve a lot of times is it pulls us out of our suffering. Sometimes the best way to get over whatever you're going through is to love on somebody else, to give towards somebody else, to serve somebody else. So Peter's saying, look, in the midst of your suffering, don't stop giving yourself away to others. Have room in your spirit for others and serve others. In reality, being self-controlled, praying, loving others, hospitality, and serving are just a manifestation of loving God and loving others. They can all be summed up in above all love. I want to make sure you know that there is this inseparable connection between loving God and loving others. And the truth of the matter is that the way you love people is the way you love God. Or maybe you could say the way I love God is the way I love people. You know, the scriptures actually say that if you don't love people, you don't love God. And so we can't do the very thing we've talked about today unless we have a deep understanding and a love for God. Jesus said, I'm obedient because I love the Father and I know the Father loves me. My obedience is rooted in love. Our obedience is rooted in love. Everything I've talked about today could very easily just be some kind of behavioral modification. You could take everything I said and you can teach it in a non-Christian context and say, look, we need to be nicer to people, and yada, yada. And the truth of the matter is if you try to do this on your own, you will fail it can't be done this is supernatural stuff but the truth is as you experience the living God as you come to a place where you know God so we sing a song I want to know you more I want to know you more I want to know you more why because when you know God more it allows you to live into your obedience anything else is just self-help anything else is just behavioral modification and in first Peter say no you got to know God the people in Iraq have to know God if they are going to survive and if they are going to live into the teachings of scripture. We got to know and experience the living God. My encouragement to you today is to find time to be with God. So we ask a question around here when we teach. What do we want people to know and what, we, what do we want people to, to do? And I think to do today is a little bit different than normal. I want you to do nothing. I want you to hang out with your dad. I want you to just hang out with God. You know, the scriptures say that if you uh, flee from sin or if you resist sin, the devil will flee from you. But if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. So maybe today you just need to draw near to God and you just need to be willing to say, God, I want to know you more. I just want to know you more. I want to know how much you love me. Help me to understand through your spirit at work within me how much you 
love me so that I can live an obedient life, so that I can put the behaviors behind me that have held me back. Help me to know you more. I really believe that anytime we know God more, it's a work of the Spirit. But I also believe that, that somewhere in there is, is this posture that we have to have. We have to surrender ourselves to knowing him more. There's this, this give and take that God's Spirit wants to reveal himself more to you, but, but you can resist the Spirit of God. You can stand in the way. And so my encouragement to you today is be with Jesus. And just say, God, help me to know you more. Wherever you are in your journey, desire to know God more. I want to close today with Paul's prayer in Ephesians. And this prayer, um, we've actually read it quite a bit over the last few months. Um, I think this is the prayer for the season at Grace. The truth of the matter is there's a big banner out there where you guys have all signed. It says immeasurably more. We want God to do immeasurably more in our midst. But you know, it starts with knowing God. He's not going to do immeasurably more because we try harder. He's not going to do immeasurably more because we just get busier. He's going to do immeasurably more when we actually come to the place where we know him more and then the spirit of God is at work within us to do more and more and more. So I'd like you to bow your heads. And I would like you to receive this prayer from Paul as he wrote it to the church in Ephesus and he writes it to you and I. It says, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he will strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, to grasp how long, to grasp how high, to grasp how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live into the prayer of Ephesians. I pray that you would help us to live into the teachings of 1 Peter. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people that above all love. That we would love you and that we would love one another. It would, that would be a church that we're known for. That we are a church of love. That those three words could fix every marriage in this room. Above all love. But it starts with knowing you, Lord. I pray that you would reveal yourself in powerful ways to each and every person in this room. I pray that they would have a, a profound experience with you through your Holy Spirit where they know you in a way that they've never known you before. And in knowing you, they would know the love that surpasses all knowledge. Lord, help us to know how wide and deep and long and high is the love of God. Lord, help us to be obedient in the way we walk with you, but not as robots, not as legalistic folks, but as people who are deeply in love with their Father. Lord, take us from this place. Give us a great Sunday. Give us a great week of communion with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed. You have a great Sunday. Jesus.